This week on the show, we have Arcan and OpenBSD running OpenBSD 6.3 on the Raspberry Pi 3. Why C is not a low-level language is something we need to discuss. Uh, we have HardenBSD switching back to OpenSSL. How the internet was almost broken. We have also EuroBSDCon call for papers available, as well as the BSDCAN 2018 schedule. So something for everyone in this week's episode of BSD Now. ESD Now, episode 244, C is a lie, recorded on the 2nd of May, 2018. Hello, I'm your host, Benedict Reuschling. And I'm Alan Jude. So, we are back from our little uh, pre-recording hiatus and uh, bringing you the freshest uh, headlines that we have this week, uh, starting with towards secure system graphics, Arcan and OpenBSD. Yeah. So uh, this article says, uh, let me preface this by saying this is a very long and medium rare technical article about the security considerations and minutia of porting most of the Arcan uh, graphics ecosystem to work under OpenBSD. The main point of this article is not so much flirting with the OpenBSD crowd or adding further noise to software engineering topics, but to go through the special considerations that had to be taken as notes to anyone else who might decide to go down this overgrown and lonesome trail, uh, and are curious about some less than obvious differences between those things that work on Linux versus other parts of the world. Okay. Uh, so it says... A disclaimer is also that most of the stuff was discovered by experimentation and combining bits and pieces scattered in uh, everything from the XORG code to the man pages, and there may be uh, smarter ways to solve some of these problems. And so they broke it down into sections based on, you know, graphics device access, hot plug input, backlight, XORG pledging, and bits that are missing. Uh, so they talk a bit about their motivation. One of the many goals behind Arkin has been not only to reduce system-wide desktop complexity, uh, but to push the envelope in terms of systems graphic features, quality, and performance. It's also to enable experimentation with security-sensitive workflows and uh, interaction schemes uh, with the One Night in Rio Vacation Photos from Plan 9 article covering one such experiment. Uh, working off the classic confidentiality, integrity, and availability model, uh, information security, staple the um, article on a crest-resistant Wayland compositing has uh, showed the effort uh, in the availability space there. Mm. So they say, uh, outside of attack surface... Uh, reduction, exploit mitigation, and safety features, there is a more mundane yet important aspect to security, and that is of software quality itself. This is an area where it's easy to succumb to fad languages and fanboyism, uh, or to drift in the software uh, homeopathy direction of some uh, bastardized form of code autism, <laughs> uh, such as counting the number of lines of code per function the indentation style, the comment-to-code ratio, and, and other far-from-useful metrics. Yeah, yeah, there are different ways to 
define the quality of software. Mm -hmm. uh, so they talk about for the graphics device access, recall that in the BSD, most of the DRM, uh, GBM, and MESA, or DRI stack, um, <laughs> is mostly uh, lifted straight from Linux, hence why some of these interfaces are decidedly non-BSD in their look and feel. They talk a bit about how some of that works. Then they talk about input drivers and one of the, you know, absolute murkiest corners of any user kernel space interface is that of input devices, whether that's keyboards, trackpads, joysticks, mice, or touchscreens. This is one of the rare few areas where you can sit and skim the Android documentation and silently whisper, if only. <laughs> Yeah, and they're talking about, you know, works 100%, 95% of the time. <laughs> <laughs> you can get lucky, but yeah. <laughs> and then they talk about uh, hot plug and related stuff there, uh, controlling the backlight. You know, backlight is simply reserved for the laptop use case, where it's an important one, as not only can modern screens uh, be murderingly bright, but also uh, can drain your battery quite quickly. The subsystem is actually quite involved in Arcan as it maps to yet another LED controller, though this one uh, can be paired with the display added events, hence why we do things. Uh, and they talk a bit about that and uh, lib backlight, fun stuff there. Uh, talking about Xorg on OpenBSD, which is a bit special because they have their own fork called Xenokera and it's not exactly the same. Uh, then they talk about applying the pledge security framework uh, from OpenBSD. And then they talk about what's missing. Uh, specifically saying the OpenBSD port of DRI currently lacks two important features, rendered nodes and direct memory access buffers. This means that we have uh, no same way of sending accelerated buffers between a client using accelerated graphics and Arcan. Uh, we put little effort into providing support for the older way, like Gem and so on. This breaks the nested Arcan in Arcan mode uh, with the Arcan of the LWA binary. It also breaks Wayland support and breaks uh, XArcan support for DRI3. Okay, some work. Uh, While it is technically possible to explicitly enable the old gem style CPU sharing, um, where clients uh, are trusted to authenticate via a challenge response scheme on the GPU, uh, and gets the key to the kingdom is far from a recommended way uh, to put the clients in just about the same privilege level as the device server itself. And that's not what you want to do. And sure, anyway, sure. lastly, and incidentally, my favorite, uh, or my least favorite part of this entire ecosystem, the libwayland-server still lacks a working port, which comes as no surprise as this thread unsafe, typecasting crazy, faux vtable loving, use after free factory is littered with no-nos, and the least of which is a pointless reliance on ePoll. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so it's a good article, and people can uh, dig into more of the um, bigger headlines that we skipped, um, because there's more in there. So uh, definitely looking good for uh, OpenBSD and the X11 system being more secure uh, than before. And uh, next up, we have installing OpenBSD 6.3 um, on a Raspberry Pi with snapshots from OpenBSD 6.3. But um, this is on the Raspberry Pi 3. So this basically 
a um, yeah installation tutorial mostly. So uh, it starts with uh, the easy way is that by installing the OpenBSD on Raspberry Pi 3, it's very easy and well-documented without almost convincing uh, the author of that article of not writing about it, but still I felt like it may help somebody new to the project. So um, always running snapshots and recommend anybody to do as well because you get the latest stuff from OpenBSD in there. And the snapshots, uh, those links will change to the next version every six months. So um, the links there and the website will change to the 6.3 version to keep the blog post valid over time. And if you're familiar with the OpenBSD flavors, then feel free to use the snapshots uh, link instead. So what do you need to run this? Uh, the requirements basically is, of course, um, the Raspberry Pi 3 in the first place. And mm -hmm. uh, then due to the lack of drivers, the OpenBSD um, operating system cannot boot directly from the SD card yet. So they'll need to run from a USB stick for the installation and the target um, aside for the SD card for the U-boot and installer. Uh, also, a serial console connected is required so that you can see what, uh, what's been printed on the uh, boot messages like um, errors or some uh, device detected or something. And... Uh, uh, that used a PL2303 USB to serial TTL adapter connected to a laptop via USB port and then the rest uh, to the Raspberry Pi via the TX, RX, and ground pins. And uh, installation is pretty much straightforward. If you know how to install OpenBSD, then this shouldn't be too difficult. Right, and just press enter here. a bunch of times. Yeah. <laughs> Although in this case, they didn't install uh, the Xorg stuff. Yeah, because um, you just need a, a small system without uh, X11 and uh, console only. That can already do a lot of uh, work. So you can select your distributions. That's pretty much uh, straightforward. And then you reboot into your newly installed uh, OpenBSD on the Raspberry Pi 3. A couple of boot messages here. You can compare if you have a similar setup. So um, that's... Uh, good way to start your OpenBSD on the Raspberry Pi 3 architecture. Yep. This week's episode of BSD Now is brought to you by iX Systems. Head over to ixsystems.com slash bsdnow and get in touch with them about your server and storage needs. They custom build all the servers exactly to order for their customers and it means you get exactly the hardware you need to solve your problems. Yeah, whether it's a big storage server or a smaller desktop backup solution, they can pretty much build you anything uh, in between those. Or um, if you require a very graphics-heavy system or with a lot of CPUs, they will uh, definitely build you one for your needs. But they ask you first, hey, what's the purpose of that server? What are you using that for? And then they recommend certain combinations of uh, hardware to um, make that not only um, a very performance system, but also one that's very stable and uh, reliable. Yeah, uh, actually, while I was out uh, at the conference, I was at the Jupiter Broadcasting Studios, the podcast network here, uh, and I helped them transition from their old uh, FreeNAS Mini uh, that had only four disks in it uh, to a 2U server they got uh, so that they could fit more drives in their NAS. Uh, and being that it was free NAS, it was super easy, right? We literally uh, plugged the USB sticks into the new bigger server, plugged the hard drives in, and everything just worked. And then we plugged in some more hard drives, 
and added the space. And then we transferred everything off uh, the second NAS they had and then stole all the drives out of that. And now they have a giant NAS with 12 disks in it. Oh, wow. And it's all powered, of course, by uh, uh, ZFS, OpenZFS in particular, mm -hmm. because um, that's a good uh, combination. And IX Systems has deployed a lot of these systems uh, for yeah, companies and uh, even uh, government and education. So that's certainly the, these are certainly the people who know how they, um, how to like not only build these systems, but also make them um, as a, as a, as a whole package uh, server solution. Some people just ship a server to you and then here, there's the server. Uh, have fun with that. Right. But if you need the whole package, they have things like the TrueNAS M series. If you want to buy a pre-built system uh, that's going to be the best performance uh, for FreeNAS and TrueNAS, uh, that's what this is. So the, they recently ran the TrueNAS M series through the uh, Veeam certification uh, for using it as a backup target, basically. And mm -hmm. uh, the testing shows that the TrueNAS exceeds the requirements for Veeam backup by more than 5x. <laughs> So they ran uh, the M40 and M50 models, which are <laughs> hybrid. They're not the all-flash ones. Like the, I think it's the X20, which is the all-flash one. Uh, they find that those models performed up to five times better in certification tests than the what Veeam recommends. Uh, with this uh, certification to complete line of IX hybrid storage devices, including the X10, X20, M40, and M50, are, have passed uh, the Veeam backup and replication for version 9.5 uh, and the VMware certification test. Yeah, so definitely uh, check out IX Systems and uh, go to ixsystems.com slash bsdnow for your server buying guide PDF that you can download for free. And these are the questions that you should ask your other vendors, whether they provide the same amount of service and you can quickly determine uh, Determined that IX Systems is the one that uh, supports all that, and no one else has the uh, kind of support and drive to build the system, especially for your use case. Yep, uh, they say the TrueNAS M series hybrid storage array uh, was configured to hold 8.4 terabytes of Veeam provided data and uh, served as a repository for all the backup images. Uh, two of the four certifica certification tests require that the images be uh, used during the restoration. Uh, the two servers, each with dual Xeon V4 CPUs, uh, were used to run the certification tests. These servers hosted all necessary virtual machines, including the Windows server that ran the Veeam backup and replication software. In addition, these servers locally stored the test Windows server VM and ran the whole vCenter VM as well. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, in a full backup test, uh, the Veeam backup certification requires that it take... Uh, no more than 30 minutes, and the FreeNAS completed it in 13 minutes, uh, 2.3 times faster than required. And a restore uh, is required to take less than 25 minutes, and FreeNAS did it in 13. <laughs> well, if you're waiting for the backup to finish, then that's certainly a good time to, to get your files back sooner rather than later. Yep, so TrueNAS Backup Solutions uh, with Veeam certifications start at less than $10,000 and, and scale approximately to $100 per terabyte, uh, which is a good deal. 
So, on to our next story. This one I found really interesting. Yeah. Uh, so, this is from uh, Tom Forsyth, uh, who used to work at Intel. And he says, hello and welcome to my blog, which is always fresh, although it's not, <laughs> uh, and always technobabble. Uh, so, anyway, so he talks about uh, Lara B, which was Intel's previous generation kind of GPGPU slash SPU slash add-on card. And, mm -hmm. and GPU. Anyway, so every month or so, someone asked me what happened to Laravee and why it failed so badly. And then I tried to explain to them that not only did it fail, uh, it was actually pretty, uh, or not only, or not only did it not, or didn't it fail, uh, it yeah. was pretty huge success. And they are understandably very puzzled by this because in the public consciousness, Laravee was the Titanic of the SPU <laughs> rolled into one. Uh, well, not quite. So rather than explain it in person a whole bunch more times, I thought I'd write it down. So he says, uh, this is not a history, uh, and I'm going to skip a ton of details for brevity. Uh, one day I'll write the whole story down because it's a pretty decent escapade with lots of fun characters, but not today. Today we're just going to get started with the basics. So when he says Larby, he means all of Knight's Ferry, Knight's Corner, Knight's Landing, etc. So that's the Xeon Phi and related machines. Ah, yes. Um, and all of the aisle cards that they talk about as well. Uh, they're all exactly the same chip uh, and the same people and the same software effort. Marketing seems to dream up a new code word every week and... Uh, it turns out there were actually only ever three chips. Uh, but anyway, uh, so that's it. Uh, there were some other code names I've forgotten over the years, but they're all of the ones uh, for the above chips. Behind all the marketing smoke and mirrors, there were only three chips ever made so far, and only four planned in total. All of them are Larrabee. Therefore, they do graphics, or not. <laughs> <laughs> So when Larrabee was originally conceived back in 2005, it was called SMAC or SMAC. And its uh, original goal were, uh, from the most to least important, number one, make the most powerful flops per watt machine for real world workloads using a huge array of simple cores on systems uh, and boards that could be built into uh, Bazillo core supercomputers. Uh, so... Basically, I think the original version of Larrabee was, what would happen if we stuck 256 Pentium 3 cores on a PCIe card and stuck it in your computer? Mm. <laughs> so, uh, goal number two was uh, make it x86 cores. So unlike GPU programming, where you have to learn and program to uh, the special instruction set that is the GPU, uh, by using x86 cores, it's all the kind of programming you already know. Um, remember that bit when we get to our next story after the break. But anyway, uh, <laughs> this means memory coherency, uh, store ordering, uh, memory protection, real operating systems, no ugly scratch pads, uh, it runs legacy code, and so on. No funky DSPs or uh, windowed register files or wacky programming models allowed. Uh, do not build another Itanium. 
If you can avoid it, yeah. Yeah. Goal number three, make it soon. Uh, and that means keeping it simple. Goal number four, support the emerging GP GPU market. So general purpose computing on a graphics card uh, with this same chip. Intel was absolutely not going to build a 150 watt PCIe card version of their embedded graphic card known as Gen. So we had to cover those programming models as well. Uh, so as a bonus, run as a normal graphics card. While we're at it. <laughs> yeah. Just to put this in perspective, um, over the next year, Intel will be rolling out their 150 watt PCIe card version of their embedded graphics platform called Gen. <laughs> okay, to uh, add to the confusion. Yes. Uh, well, this is after Larvae kind of failed or whatever. Mm. Okay. So, uh, goal number five add as little graphic specific hardware to the card as possible. Okay, makes sense. Yeah, so they say that ordering is important in terms of engineering and focus. Larvae was never primarily a graphics card. If Intel had wanted a kick ass graphics card, uh, they already had a very good graphics team begging them to be allowed to build a big, fat, hot, separate, discrete card rather than dealing with the tiny amount of space and power and heat they could do on the processor die. Uh, but Intel management didn't want that. They still don't. Well, maybe actually now they do, but anyway. Uh, but if they were going to build Larvae anyway, they wanted us to cover that market as well. Now remember, this was 2005 at that point, uh, just as GPU was starting to show that it could actually be interesting in the high-performance computing workloads. Uh, but it was before the plethora of kernel-style coding languages that spread to normal, uh, like C and Fortran and so on, so that you could actually write GPGPU stuff without having a special programming language. So Intel was worried its existing Xeon CPU lines weren't going to align uh, with the emerging threat of things like GPGPU and Sony's cell processors, or Sun Niagara, and other radically massively parallel architectures. They needed something that was CPU-like to program, but GPU-like in number crunching power. So over the years, the external message got polluted and confused, sometimes intentionally, and I admit I played my own part in that. An awful lot of highly speculative marketing projections, uh, i.e. bullshit, uh, was issued as uh, firm proclamations, and people talked about things that were 20 years off as if they were already in the chip. Uh, I can't help uh, that marketing wanted to keep Larvae the graphics side, and uh, Knight's Landing slash Xeon Phi, the HPC side, separate in the public consciousness, even though they were exactly the same chip on uh, very nearly exactly the same board. As I recall, the only physical difference was that one of them had a DVI connector soldered onto it and one of them didn't. Mm -hmm. But behind all the marketing, the design of Larvae was uh, a CPU with a very wide SIMD unit. Uh, designed above all to be a real grown-up CPU with coherent caches, well-ordered memory rules, good memory protection, and true multitasking, real threads, and able to run things like FreeBSD and Linux. Larvae, in the form of the Knight's Crossing card, went on to become the fastest supercomputer in the world for a couple of years, and it's still making a ton of money for Intel in the high-performance computing market uh, that it was designed for fighting very nicely against the GPUs and other custom architectures. 
its successor, Knight's Landing, is uh, just being released now in mid-2016 and should do very nicely in that space too. Now remember, Knight's Crossing is literally the same chip as LAR-B2. Uh, it has textures, samplers, and a video out port sitting on the die. They just didn't test them or hook them up or expose them to the software. <laughs> so now uh, to look through that list of goals and see how they did. So how do we get on, how do we do on the original goals? Number one, make it the most powerful performance per watt machine. Success, the fastest supercomputer in the world empowers a whole bunch of others in the top 10. That's a big win, covering a very vulnerable market for Intel and making them a lot of money and good press. Goal number two, uh, make it out of x86 cores. Also a success. The only compromise to full x86 compatibility for Knight's Ferry and Knight's Crossing uh, was that they didn't have SSE because it would have been too much work to build and validate those units. Because uh, remember, they started with the original Pentium chips. But Knight's Landing added SSE legacy instructions back in, so we uh, really truly is a proper x86 core. In fact, it's so x86 that modern x86 has grown to include it. Uh, you may have heard of the AVX512 instructions on your modern desktop and Xeon systems. Uh, that's actually the Larrabee instruction set uh, with some encoding changes and a few tweaks ported forward to the actual x86 platform. And that's where we get all that massive performance for encryption and uh, hashing and a bunch of stuff like that. You know, very wide SIMD units dealing with a lot of data at once. Uh, so goal number three, make it soon and keep it simple. Uh, results, not bad. It's not quite as simple as slapping a bunch of Pentiums on a chip, of course, but it wasn't infeasibly complex either. We did slip a year for various reasons, and the Knight's Ferry performance was uh, badly hurt by a bunch of bugs, but these things happen. The Knight's Crossing card was almost on time and turned out to be great. Uh, goal number four, support the emerging GPGPU market. Uh, primary goal was virtually a success. It would have been a real success if it had ever actually shipped. <laughs> Larry <laughs> ran uh, compute shaders and OpenCL very well. In many cases, better in flops for watt than the rival GPUs. And because it ran the other graphical bits of DirectX and OpenGL very well, if you were using the graphics APIs mainly for compute, it was a compelling package. Unfortunately, when the we don't do graphics anymore order came down from on high, all of that got thrown in the trash with the rest. It uh, did also kickstart the development of the host of GPGPU-like programming models, such as ISPC and CL CILK, plus, uh, and those survive and are doing well. But bonus goal, Close, but no cigar. Uh, we'll talk about that a little bit below. And number five, add as little graphics-specific hardware to the card as possible. That was a moderate success. The only dedicated graphics hardware uh, was the texture units, and we took them almost uh, entirely from the gen architecture. So we didn't have to reinvent the wheel there. If you eyeball a die photo, they take up about 10% of the area, which certainly isn't small, but isn't crazy huge either. When you're not used to, uh, when they're not used to their, or when they're not in use, they power down, so they're not a power drain unless you're using them. In which case, uh, they're massively better than doing the texture sampling on a core. They were uh, such a small part that nobody bothered to make a new version 
of Nice Crossing without them, even though they didn't have the graphics output. Uh, they still sit there today, visible on the die photos as eight things that look like cores but are slightly thinner. Uh, truth be told, if Knight's Crossing had been a proper graphics-focused part, we probably would have wanted 16 of those instead of just eight, uh, but that wasn't so, so we had to make do with eight. Huh. But now to get to the interesting part, or the part I found interesting anyway, so let's talk about the elephant in the room, graphics. Yes, at <laughs> uh, that we did fail, and we failed mainly for reasons of time and politics even when we didn't fail by nearly as much as people think. Because we were never allowed to ship it, people just saw a giant crater. But in fact, Larby did run graphics, and it ran surprisingly well. Larby emulated a full DirectX 11 and OpenGL 4.x compliant graphics card, by which I mean it was a PCIe card, you plugged it into your machine, you plugged a monitor into the back of it, you installed the standard Windows driver, and it was a graphics card. There were no other graphics cards in the system. It was the full DirectX feature set, and there were over 300 titles, uh, video games, that ran perfectly. Uh, you downloaded the game from Steam, and they just worked. Uh, they totally think it's a graphics card. But uh, it's actually running FreeBSD on that card, and under FreeBSD, it's just running an x86 program called DirectX GFX uh, with 248 threads. <laughs> Uh, and it shares a file system with the host, and you can tell it into it and give it other work to do and steal cores from your own graphics card. <laughs> it was mind-bending. <laughs> and because it was in software, it could evolve. Uh, Larby was the first full DirectX 11 compatible card Intel had, because unlike Gen, we didn't have to make a new chip when Microsoft released a new spec. It was, just, uh, it, it was also the fastest graphics card Intel had, and possibly still is. Of course, that's totally unfair comparison because Gen, the integrated graphics engine, had far less power and area budget. But that doesn't still tell you that Larvi ran graphics perfectly respectable speeds. Uh, I even got quite good at Dirt 3 uh, while developing the Larvi. So when you, if you ran a Knight's Crossing card on Windows and used it as a graphics card, it was actually running FreeBSD and just running a 248-threaded process that emulated DirectX in software on FreeBSD. Without you knowing it. Yeah. It's like you're running Windows, you but your graphics card is running FreeBSD and just doing all the work on 248 Pentium cores. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the irony. Yeah. Uh, as an aside, actually, while at Linux Fest Northwest last weekend... Uh, one of the uh, local computer companies was uh, exhibiting and actually had a machine with a Xeon 5 processor. Ooh. So rather than the add-on card version, it was where the, the Larby system was the, the host CPU. Uh, and while Intel claims it'll only run Linux, they tried TrueOS, and it worked perfectly fine. Oh, see? <laughs> well, it might have not seen all of the 256 threads. So basically, it's 64 cores, and each core has four threads. Yeah. Um, but because of the way they're aligned, it might actually go beyond the 256 core limit. Okay. Uh, because there'll be gaps. <laughs> so it'll be like uh, 64, and then a gap, and then all the threads. And anyway. Uh, but it does work. That's interesting. Yeah, definitely. 
yeah, you never know where you encounter a BSD in some way or the other. Yeah, so there's uh, lots more detail in the blog post if you want to check it out. Uh, but I think we've already spent quite a bit of time on that. <laughs> but it connects into our next section. So, time for the news roundup this week. Uh, and as we promised in the earlier uh, segment that we had, that we make it from x86 cores, we have a section from the ACMQ magazine called C is not a low-level language. Your computer is not a fast PDP-11. Yes, this is written by uh, FreeBSD developer David Chisnell. Mm -hmm. He says, uh, in the wake of the recent Meltdown Inspector vulnerabilities, it's worth spending some time looking at the root causes. Both of these vulnerabilities involve processors speculatively executing instructions past some kind of access check and allowing the attacker to observe the results via a side channel. This, uh, the feature that led to these vulnerabilities, along with several others, were added to let C programmers continue to believe that they were programming in a low-level language when it hasn't been the case for decades. Of course, processor vendors are not alone in this. Those of us developing on uh, C and C++ compilers have also participated. So David's uh, uh, a developer at LLVM. Mm. So to start, let's look at what is a low-level language? Uh, computer science pioneer Alan Perlis uh, defined low-level programming languages in this way. A programming language is low-level when its programs uh, require attention to the irrelevant. <laughs> <laughs> While yes, this definition applies to C, it does not capture what people desire in a low-level language. Various attributes cause people to regard a language as low-level. Think of programming languages as being on a continuum with assembly on one end and the interface of the Starship Enterprise's <laughs> computer on the other. Low-level languages are close to the middle, whereas high-level languages are closer to how humans think. For a language to be close to the middle, it must provide an abstract machine that maps easily to the abstractions exposed by the target platform. It's easy to argue that C was a low-level programming language for the PDP-11. They both describe a model in which programs executed sequentially, in which memory was a flat space, and even the pre and post increment operators cleanly lined up with the PDP-11's addressing modes, making them fast PDP-11 emulators. Uh, however, the root cause of the Spectre and Meltdown vulnerabilities uh, was the processor architects were trying to build not just fast processors, but fast processors that expose the same abstract machine as a PDP-11. This is essential uh, because it allows C programmers to continue in the belief that their language is close to the underlying hardware. Uh, C code provides mostly serial abstract machine until C++11, or C, sorry, C11, an entirely serial machine if non-standard vendor extensions uh, were excluded. Uh, creating a new thread in a program operating uh, or sorry, operation known to be expensive, so processors wish to keep their execution units busy running C code uh, rely on the instruction level parallelism. Uh, they instead, uh, no, sorry, they inspect adjacent operations and issue independent ones in parallel. This adds a significant amount of complexity and power consumption to allow programmers to write mostly serial code, but have it be fast. In contrast, GPUs achieve very high performance without any of this logic at the expense of requiring explicit parallel programs. 
Um, <laughs> so as we were talking about with Larrabee, the idea was make a card that can do a lot of x86 work so people won't have to rewrite their programs. And this article is saying, you know, continuing to go down this path of regular C on x86 and pretending it's just a really fast PDP-11 is maybe not the best way because the processor is having to do a lot of guessing and, and so on to try to make this program kind of parallel. Whereas if we went with something like the GPU model where we acknowledge that the processor is always going to be parallel, which I don't think you can even buy a single core processor anymore on x86, um, if we program to that, we might be in a much better position. The quest for high uh, ILP, which was instruction level parallelism, was a direct cause of Spectre and Meltdown. A modern C processor has up to 180 instructions in flight at any time, in stark contrast to a sequential C abstract machine, which expects each operation to complete before the next one begins. A typical heuristic uh, for C code is there is a branch on average every seven instructions. If you wish to keep such a pipeline full for a single thread, then you must guess the target of the next 25 branches, like if statements and so on. This, again, adds complexity. It also means that an incorrect guess results in work being done and then thrown away, which is not ideal for power consumption. Uh, this discarded work has visible side effects, and that's how Spectre Meltdown can be exploited. On a modern high-end, or sorry, yeah, a high-end core, the register rename engine is one of the largest consumers of die, space, and power. To make matters worse, it cannot be turned off or power-gated while any instructions are running, which makes it uh, inconvenient in a dark silicon era where transistors are cheap but power transistors are an expensive resource. This unit is uh, conspicuously absent on GPUs, where parallelism again comes from multiple threads rather than trying to extract instruction-level parallelism uh, from intrinsic scalar code. If instructions do not have dependencies uh, that need to be reordered, then the register renaming uh, engine would not be necessary. So consider another part of the C abstract machine's memory model, flat memory. Uh, this hasn't been true for more than 20 years. A modern processor often has three levels of cache in between the register and the main memory, which attempts to hide the latency of accessing memory. This cache is, as its name implies, hidden from the programmer, and so is not visible in C. Efficient use of this cache is one of the most important ways to make programs run quickly on a modern processor, yet this is completely hidden by the abstract machine, and programmers must rely on knowing implementation details of the cache, for example, that two values are 64-bit aligned may end up in the same cache line, to write efficient code. Whereas, if you could decide what to cache and what not to cache, you might actually get much better performance out of the same code. And there are many other arguments in here uh, and there's well worth reading if you're at all interested in the future of programming and uh you know the multi-core era yeah, so talks a bit about imagining a non-c processor you know the proposed fixes for spectre and meltdown impose significant performance penalties largely offsetting the advances that microarchitecture has made in the past 10 years 
Perhaps it's time to stop trying to make C code faster and instead think about what programming models would look like on processors that were designed to be fast. And it talks a little bit about the Sun UltraSpark TX series and a bunch of other processors and the ARM's scalar vector extensions and a bunch of other interesting bits. Mm -hmm. uh, in the end, a processor designed purely for speed, not for a compromise between speed and support for the C programming language, would likely uh, support large numbers of threads, have wide vector units, and have a, sim a much simpler memory model. Running C code on such a system would be problematic, so given the large amount of legacy C code in the world, it would not uh, likely be a commercial success. There's a common myth in software development that parallel programming is hard. That would come as a surprise to Alan Kay, uh, who was able to teach an actor model language to young children uh, with which they wrote uh, working programs with more than 200 threads. It comes as a surprise to Erlang programmers, who commonly write programs with thousands of parallel components. It's more accurate to say that parallel programming in a language with a C-like abstract machine is difficult. And given the prevalence of parallel hardware, whether that's multi-core CPUs or many-core GPUs, it's just another way of saying that C doesn't map to our modern hardware very well. Okay. But then again, you know, what are we going to write our operating systems in then, right? <laughs> yeah, there's some uh, some kind of dependency there. Yeah. Okay, uh, speaking about operating systems, uh, we should uh, go to our next section here, uh, which is HardenBSD switching back to OpenSSL. So this is over at HardenBSD.org, of course. And uh, they write uh, that over a year ago, HardenBSD switched to LibreSSL as the default cryptographic library and base for 12 current and 11 stable, followed suit later on. And uh, Bernard Spill has done an excellent job at keeping our users up to date with the latest security patches from LibreSSL. And uh, after recently updating 12 current to LibreSSL version 2.7.2 from 2.6.4, it has become increasingly clear uh, for them that performing major upgrades requires a team larger than a single person. Upgrading to 2.7.2 caused a lot of fallout in our ports tree. As of uh, the 28th of April 2018, several ports uh, they consider high priority are still broken. And as it stands right now, it would take Bernard a significant amount of his spare personal time to fix these issues. So uh, until we have a multi-person team uh, dedicated to maintaining LibreSSL in base, along with the patches required in ports, HardenBSD will use OpenSSL going forward as the default cryptographic library in base. And uh, LibreSSL will coexist with OpenSSL in the source tree, as it does now. However, the make LibreSSL uh, knob will default to no instead of the current yes, because, uh, or um, due to Bernard, will continue maintaining LibreSSL in base along with addressing the various problematic ports entries. But it's just too much for a single person, as you can uh, imagine. Uh, to provide our users with ample time to plan and perform the updates, uh, we will wait a period of two months prior to making the switch and uh, the actual switch will occur on 1st of July 2018 and will be performed simultaneously in 12 current and 11 stable, uh, while HardenBSD will archive a copy of the LibreSSL-centric package repositories and binary updates for base for a period of six months after the switch, expiring the package repos on around uh, January 1st, 2019. 
So this essentially gives uh, their users a eight full months for an upgrade path. So that should be enough for uh, pretty much uh, all of them. Uh, as part of the switch back to OpenSSL, the default NTP daemon in base will switch back from OpenNTPD to ISC NTPD. So users who have uh, the local underscore OpenNTP enabled in rc.conf uh, set to yes, they will need to switch back to NTPD underscore enable equals yes as a result of that. And users who build base from source will want to uh, fully clean their object directories just in case. And any and all packages that link with libcrypto or libssl will need to be rebuilt or reinstalled. Uh, but hopefully with the community's help, we look forward to the day when we can make the switch back to libssl again. And we at HardenBSD believe that providing our users options to rid themselves of software monocultures can better increase security and manage risk. So that's kind of a setback. Um, yeah, but it's part of the problem is that LibreSSL's release cadence doesn't match uh, FreeBSD's, right? Uh, mm. And so when they do a major update like this that breaks things in the middle of a stable branch, it gets really complicated to support things. Yeah, and you still want to have your users something that they can use, yeah. whether it's yeah. the one library or the other one. OpenSSL has the same problem, but their release cadence is slower, so it's an issue less frequently. And usually with a bit more warning. Sure, uh, sure. Yeah. Know, so basically, you'd have to somehow get pre releases of the LibreSSL portable version by like forward porting stuff that they're committing to OpenBSD current uh, into the portable thing and mm -hmm. working on the ports, you know, so that you have lead time to get ahead of these issues. Um, especially because, you know, the problem they have now is. 727 comes out, or sorry, uh, 272 comes out, uh, and things are broken, and they have to fix them before they can go forward, whereas if they know which ports are going to be broken ahead of time, they can be working on the fix so that when the release actually comes out, uh, things will go a little bit smoother. Yeah. and uh, uh, But that's why I've been using OpenSSL the whole time and just not bothered with SSL. Yep. So, um, again, thanks for uh, all your efforts, Bernard Spill, and all the others working on these ports and uh, keeping OpenSSL as well as LibreSSL. TrueOS does, because they've been using LibreSSL as well. Oh, yeah. Maybe they have similar um, thoughts, but this is uh, it's a really big we'll setback, actually, to... Uh, well, yeah, we'll have to deal with it somehow. So, yeah, if you're on Hardened BSD, then uh, consider this uh, warning that there Prepare will be some for changes. a bit of a bumpy ride during the upgrades. Yeah. Uh, but what uh, is our second sponsor giving you this week, DigitalOcean? Uh, we have something special for you. I guess, Alan, you should Indeed. mention that. Yes. So, uh, well, if you already have an account uh, on... DigitalOcean, and you've never used a coupon code, you can use our coupon code FreeBSD now uh, and get a $10 credit added to your account. But if you haven't actually signed up yet, you should sign up soon while this offer is still going on. If you go to do.co slash BSD now, uh, you'll land at a special page that will offer you a $100 credit. Uh, this one expires after 60 days, though. Uh, unlike the $10 credit, which goes for as long as you need it for. Uh, but, you know, with the cheapest VM being $5, probably only lasts about two months anyway. So, if you want to play with DigitalOcean for 
with some free money and credit, uh, go over to do.co slash BSD now and sign up right away and you'll get a hundred dollar credit and you can start spinning up instances and so on. Remember, instances are billed per hour. So you can do a lot of stuff and then as long as you delete it, you only pay for the hours it existed. So that $100 credit for 60 days can go a long way. You can get... Oh yeah, uh, certainly. Especially for the people who have never tried out DigitalOcean mm -hmm. before. And uh, oh, look at what kind of cool combinations of memory and virtual CPUs you can have for $100. That's quite a lot of things you can combine here. Yeah, you know, even just here. for... Uh, $40 a month, you get an 8 gigabyte of RAM machine with 4 CPU cores and 160 gigs of storage and 5 terabytes of bandwidth. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. You can so, do some cool or, stuff know, on the web with that. If you just say, want to rebuild all your packages uh, <laughs> because your you know, TrueOS is switching or something, um, you can get the 32 core machine for dollar and 43 cents an hour well if you have a hundred dollars in credit that's only going to last 60 days and the biggest machine you need is 40 dollars a month and that's only going to add up to 80 dollars over the 60 days you might as well burn up the extra by running a 32 core machine with uh almost four terabytes of ssd storage 192 gigs of ram because <laughs> why not yeah because you can it's uh yeah it's available yeah, and or if you go that, with their you... optimized droplets, or sorry, the flexible droplets, for the same $15 price point, you can flip back and forth between one gig of memory and three CPUs, two gigs and two CPUs, or three gigs and one CPU, whatever works best for you. Hmm. Uh, but if and... you're going with the other sizes, especially just for fun with that $100 credit, uh, pro, tip, pro tip, if you start with a smaller sized uh, droplet, like say the $10 one with two gigs of RAM and eight, uh, 50 gigs of storage, and then resize it up to one of the larger ones, you'll also be able to shrink it back down. So start with uh, you know, the $10 one, size it up to the $40 one, so you get eight gigs of RAM and four CPUs instead of two gigs of RAM and one CPU, uh, but you don't take the extra disk space, then you'll be able to shrink it back down once you've used up the $100 credit. So you don't have to stay on the big one. Or mm. you can just do things like, uh, I only need my game server to be big on the weekend, not during the when week. When we're playing. And you can <laughs> size them up and down like that and save money because you pay based on the number of hours that it's at the different sizes instead of monthly. Yeah. And it's not just the droplet that you get. You get the rest of the DigitalOcean stuff as well. The uh, cloud firewalls, the monitoring and alerting, the uh, global available data centers, so close to your location, and the enterprise SSDs. So this is all SSD storage, um, all available in your droplet right away. Yep. So check it out. Go to do.co slash bsdnow and get your $100 credit. Okay, so now that we talked a lot about the internet, uh, we have a story here about how Dan Kaminsky almost broke the internet. So if you don't know Dan Kaminsky, he's a, a security researcher. Is that the best description? Yeah, I think so. Yep. And um, here's a little story. Um, that's Oh, yeah, it's from yeah April. This dates back to 
2008, so 10 years ago now, and basically for the anniversary, they've written up a nice blog post over at uh, Duo Security. So, mm -hmm. in the summer of 2008, security researcher Dan Kaminsky disclosed how he had found a huge flaw in the internet that could let attackers redirect web traffic to alternate servers and disrupt normal operations. In, uh, his, uh, in this hacker history video, which is at the top of the blog, Kaminsky describes the flaw and notes the issue remains unfixed. Uh, so he says, we were really concerned about web pages and email because that was what you got uh, compromised when you compromised DNS. You think you're sending an email to IBM and really it goes to the bad guy. Yeah, this is uh, before we had as much SSL as we have now to make sure you're actually verifying the identity of the other uh the person on the other end that you were talking to. And even with email, we're still not using as much SSL as we should be. At least most websites now you're verifying before you put in sensitive information that you're actually talking to the real IBM. But uh, especially back in 2008, that wasn't the case. So as the phone book of the internet, DNS translates easy to remember domain names into IP addresses so that the users don't have to remember strings of numbers to reach web applications and services. Uh, authoritative name servers push the IP addresses of domain names. Recursive name servers talk to those authoritative servers to find addresses for those domains and save the information in its cache to speed up the response time the next time they're asked about it. While anyone can set up name servers and configure an authoritative zone for any site, if recursive name servers don't point to it to ask the question, no one will get those wrong answers. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. So then he talks a little bit about, we made the internet less flammable. <laughs> <laughs> so Kaminsky found a fundamental design flaw in DNS that made it possible to inject incorrect information into a name server's cache, also known as DNS cache poisoning. Uh, in this case, if an attacker crafted DNS queries looking for sibling names of existing domains, such as 1.example.com, then 2.example.com, and 3.example.com, uh, while claiming to be the official www server for example.com, the name server will save that uh, server IP address for www in its cache. Hmm. The servers will go, you are the official. Go right ahead, tell me what it's supposed to be, and then store it in the cache. Since the issue affected nearly every DNS server on the planet, it required a coordinated response to address it. So Kaminsky talked to Paul Vixie, the creator of several DNS protocol extensions and applications. And Vixie called an emergency summit of major IT vendors at Microsoft's headquarters to figure out what to do about it. The fix involved the 16-bit transaction identifier that DNS lookups use with U2B source port to create a 32-bit transaction identifier. Uh, instead of fixing the flaw so that it can't be exploited, the resolution focused on making it uh, take more than 10 seconds eliminating the instantaneous attack. Right? They tried to get some fix available immediately instead of having to re-architect the whole internet. Uh, he said, it's not like we repaired DNS, we just made it less flammable. Uh, the real solution, DNSSEC, or the Domain Name System Security Extensions, uh, is intended to secure DNS by adding a cryptographic layer to the DNS information. The root zone of the internet was signed for DNSSEC back in July of 2010, and the .com top-level domain was finally signed in April of 2011. 
Unfortunately, adoption of DNSSEC has been slow, even 10 years after Kaminsky first raised the alarm about DNS, uh, as less than 15% of queries uh, actually go through DNSSEC validating resolvers. Hmm. Uh, so the internet was never designed to be secure. The internet was designed to move pictures of cats. <laughs> It's not what it was designed for. It was designed to be a research network of all nice people. And turns out the internet isn't full of only nice people. Uh, yeah. No one expected the internet to be used for commerce and critical communications. If people lose faith in DNS, then all the things that depend on it are at risk. So what can we do? Uh, talks a little bit about some of the answers in the video. Mm. Yeah, so this is... Still an issue, actually, so DNSSEC is uh, good for something. Yep, so uh, Kaminsky says, uh, some of us got to go fix it. <laughs> yeah, that's, <laughs> that's a good summary. But there's a whole video there uh, that'd be worth looking at as well. Oh, sorry, I uh, was uh, a bit distracted here. So, yeah, um, the next story that we have is Open Indiana Hipster 2018.4 is available. So this is the new release here. We have the release notes. They're uh, short and sweet. Um, they write that we have released a new Open Indiana Hipster snapshot 2018.4, and the noticeable changes are that the userland software is rebuilt with GCC 6, uh, the KPTI was enabled to mitigate recent security issues and Intel CPUs. You might have heard about those. So I'm not sure. And uh, support of GNOME 2 desktop was removed. And uh, sorry, clicked on something else. Uh, the linked images now support the zone proxy service as well as the mate desktop applications are delivered as 64-bit uh, only. Uh, the UPower support was integrated and the IIIM was removed. And if you want to more, learn more about this, you can get more uh, details in the release notes and um, get the release as well from the uh, FTP sites. Yep. Talk a bit about some of the other changes. They say, uh, although shipped uh, ISO and USB images support booting from UEFI, it's still work in progress. The VGA console is not supported when systems are booted in UEFI mode. And the installer still misses some steps to create a proper bootable, uh, bootable uh, UEFI image. Okay. So yeah, the Open Indiana users should uh, check that out and um, yeah, update to the latest version. So, time for the Beastie Bits this week. We have news from EuroBSDCon. They uh, opened their call for papers. And uh, here's the link uh, for the uh, registration page, of course. Yes, uh, the EuroBSDCon program committee is inviting BSD developers and users to submit innovative and original uh, talk proposals not previously presented at other European conferences. Proposals should be sent through the new registration system at registration.eurobsdcon.org. The submission period begins on April 24th, a couple of uh, weeks ago now, or a week ago anyway, uh, and will close on Sunday, June 17th. Uh, so you have a bit of time, but you want to get your uh, talks in and uh, block off uh, September 20th to 23rd on your calendar, and uh, we'll see you in Romania. 
Yep. We want to see you there. As uh, many pe folks from the region or from uh, the wider region uh, as possible, because EuroBSDCon is uh, always a great event uh, with uh, always a new country each year. So that's definitely not just for the sightseeing, but also for meeting uh, locals and uh, yeah, people who always go to EuroBSDCon. Cool. Uh, we have also news from OpenSSH. The version 7.7 .7 is available. As is, of course, over at OpenSSH.com. And uh, what's the news here? Seems uh, the like biggest this is... potentially incompatible change is that ah. SSH and SSHD have dropped compatibility support for some very old SSH implementations, including the SSH.com uh, less than or equal to 2.x and OpenSSH 3.x. So if you're still using OpenSSH3 somewhere, it's not going to work with OpenSSH 7.7. .7. These versions were all released in or before 2001 and predate the final uh, SSH RFCs. The support in question wasn't necessarily for IFC compliant SSH implementations. Hmm. Yeah, after 17 years, it's time for an update. <laughs> yes. Uh, so this was primarily a bug fix release, so don't expect uh, too much in features and so on, but added experimental support for PQC XMFS keys, which is extended hash-based signatures. Uh, and they provide a link to the Internet Engineering Task Force draft of the RFC for that. Uh, they added the R domain criteria for the SSHD config match keyword to allow conditional configuration that depends on which routing domain a connection was received on uh, with support for OpenBSD and Linux. Uh, SSHD config has an uh, an extra option related to that as well. Uh, SSHD now has an expiry time option for the authorized keys files to allow to auto expire keys and authorized keys. Uh, so you can actually say that this key is allowed to log in until this date and it automatically revokes it. Uh, that's actually a really interesting feature. Yeah, that's useful for like tech support people and stuff like that or students who are only allowed to access servers for the semester and then yep. shouldn't be. Uh, SSH added a bind interface option, uh, which is basically a more usable version of bind address. So instead of having to get the address, you can just say, connect to there using my wired interface, not my wireless or whatever. Uh, they've also exposed device allocated uh, for tune or tap forwarding via a new percent %t expansion in the local command. This allows you to specify, you know, if it's going to create a tap device on the fly, you're not going to know what it's called when you're running the command. So you can use the percent %t variable in the command and it'll be replaced with the name of the interface. Also, SSH, SCP, and SFTP have added URI support to SSH and the three. So you can actually do SSH colon slash slash user at host or SFTP colon slash slash user at host slash path or whatever, and uh, it will work. And they that's also described in the Internet Engineering Task Force draft uh, for the SSH URIs. Oh, cool. Encoded all in one URI. Although apparently there's a problem with the draft where it still uses the deprecated MD5 hash uh, and you can't specify another algorithm, so maybe there'll be a future version of that draft that will fix that. Hmm. Okay. Uh, and SSH keygen allows you to specify certificate validity intervals by only specifying the start or stop time and having the other auto-calculated. 
Yep, and there's also a bunch of bug fixes. Uh, if you're interested in the details, we have the uh, release notes linked in the show notes. Uh, next up is the package source 2018 quarter one has been released. So this is over at package source uh, and yep. 18,000 packages available for 23 different platforms. Yeah, it's not just one. It's 23 different platforms. Yep. Uh, 213 packages were added, 76 were removed, and just under 2,000 uh, were updated. That's a lot. Yeah. Uh, with uh, about 5,000 commits by 69 unique committers uh, since the uh, 2017 Q4 release. Some headlines include updating Erlang to version 20.3, Firefox ESR to 25.7.3 and mainline to 29.0.2, GCC 7.3, Go 1.10, uh, MySQL 5.7, uh, Java 8.162, PHP 7.2.4, Postgres uh, 9.3, 9.4, 9.5, 9.6, and 10.3, uh, Python 3.4, 3.5, and 3.6, Qt 5.10, Ruby 2.2.10, 2.3, 2.4, 2.5, The biggest ones we said goodbye to were Apache 2.2 and all of its related modules. Okay. Well, I guess no one will miss them. (laughs) And the default version of MySQL switched to 5.7. Okay, so there should be something in there for everyone. And, uh, oh, the next item that we have is a big one because it's only roughly five weeks away. BSD CAN schedule is finally available. So this is... If uh, you haven't registered for the conference yet, you should get on that or you can end up paying a late fee. Yep. We didn't uh, want to uh, say it uh, loud enough, but you should get there as soon as possible. So uh, don't blame us if you're late. And uh, so this is, of course, a couple of days, uh, starting with the famous goat buff on the 5th of June. Mm -hmm. And uh, then it's tutorial time on the first day. Uh, I will be teaching my tutorial in the afternoon if you're interested in Ansible. Uh, But if you're also interested in BGP for non-experts, you can also go to that one. And on the second day of tutorials, there's a tutorial about PF and networking with OpenBSD, uh, writing TLS-secured client and server applications. And um, oh, on that same day is also the registration pub, so you can grab your, um, well, your conference bag and uh, lanyards and uh, <laughs> the, the items that identify you. And then it's two days of talks, amazing talks. Um, it's yeah, there's two, a, a uh, huge list. If you yep. can't find enough interesting talks in there, uh, <laughs> I'd be very curious as how that happened. Um, anyway, there's lots of great stuff. You should come. Uh, you know, the hallway track alone is amazing. Uh, and you'll have all kinds of difficulty juggling that between all the good talks you want to see. Uh, so yeah. we look forward to seeing everybody at BSD Can. So hurry up, register, make your travel plans, get your hotel. See you yeah. there. We'll, we'll be there. Say hi if you see us in the hallway or somewhere else. Then uh, it's always good to uh, say hi to our viewers and listeners. 
And last but not least, we have Michael Dexter's Linux Fest Northwest talk already available on YouTube. So uh, you've been to that one, Alan? Uh, no, it was late in the day on Sunday, and I had already. Uh, oh. I was busy doing TechSnap actually. Um, ah, see. <laughs> so, uh, but Linux Fest Northwest, uh, the videos are up, and they had the switching to the BSDs, a crash course in FreeBSD, FreeNAS, TrueOS, and OpenBSD. Uh, so, if, especially if you're coming from a Linux side, it's worth checking out. Uh, I love this particular slide. I happened to pause the video on, which <laughs> is uh, don't take Dexter's word for why you should use BSD. Listen to Linus Torvalds. If 386 <laughs> BSD had been available when I started on Linux, Linux would probably never have happened. Yep, that's true. Yep. So blame it all on AT and T. <laughs> <laughs> in one way or the other yeah <laughs> yeah so check out the talk it should uh, give you um good introduction to the bsds if you've never heard about them uh which is unlikely if you follow this show but um well if you've yeah. heard about them but you want to you know uh, kind of get a, a crash course on just what parts of it to to look at and why you might want to switch it's worth checking out mm -hmm. Of course, what you should also check out is whether your latest backup is still working. And if it doesn't, then it's a good chance to start with our um, feedback and questions sponsor, Tarsnap, which provides you with the online backup for truly paranoid people. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Tarsnap is the only backup service uh, that encrypts your files with the key that only you have and ensures that all your data is safe. And... They give you the source code for the client so you can check for yourself. Yeah, whether there are any backdoors or someone is reading your uh, key file or redirecting your backups to some obscure servers. You can yes, look just, in there, you but know, you won't find anything. Lots of backup companies will claim to use military-grade encryption, uh, which, you know, if you know much about the military-industrial complex, you know that probably means worse than modern encryption. Uh, but... You know, they make all these claims, but if you don't have the source code for the client, how can you tell? With Tarsnap, you have it, and you can be sure that your data is encrypted with your key before it goes out to the internet. Yep, and it's also deduplicated, so you don't have to um, copy so every you, file yeah. that you have splattered you out throughout storage, multiple directories. You don't have to send blocks you've already uploaded, and so that saves you both on storage cost and on upload. You know, your backups are only useful if you can upload them to the internet. And most people's internet connections can't upload all that fast. So uh, segmenting the files, deduplicating those blocks, compressing them, and then encrypting and signing them is the best way to ensure you send the minimum amount of data. In particular, um, Tarstep has one of the best algorithms available for segmenting and deduplicating your data. Rather than just chunking your file into like 4K blocks or something to do it, it actually has its own algorithm for finding the natural splits in your files uh, so that when it detects a diff, it will find the smallest possible diff rather than, uh, you know, if you change one byte, you end up, or if you change two bytes, you can end up uploading two whole blocks. Uh, um, or depending on how the file is encoded, it could change every block after that one. Uh, whereas with Tarsnap, it will find the smallest possible diff and then compress it and encrypt it and sign it and upload it. 
So in addition to the encryption, making sure that nobody else can access your files uh, from the internet, kind of like uh, ZFS, the signature allows you to verify when you get the data back that it hasn't been modified. Yep, and as long as you retain the key, you can always get your files back. Yes, and importantly, uh, since you can't actually ever guarantee that something in the cloud is deleted, if you want to destroy the data in the cloud, you just destroy the key and that data becomes useless. That's no use to anyone. Uh, and then you just do fresh backups with a new key and you're good to go. Yep. So check out Tarsnap and uh, start backing up your files. Okay, time for the feedback and questions this week. Um, we start with uh, Bob uh, asking a question about help locating FreeBSD help. So uh, Bob writes, hello, I'm a BSD now uh, viewer and looking for help. I'm in need of a FreeBSD consultant to assist with some technical issues, migration and planning. I work for a small regional ISP and email provider. We are just barely keeping our head above water. The small company began out of the original owner's garage in the BBS days of the early 90s. Some years ago, the original company closed down and the original owner and primary system administrator moved out of the state. The servers, employees, and customers were acquired by another small local company to keep the servers uh, where the service is going. Since then, the company has lost their remaining system administrator. Uh, there's a lot of details skipped here. Uh, so now I'm the only one remaining employee. The current owner is not a Unix or BSD administrator. Uh, our three FreeBSD servers are running ancient version 7.4 release and XM7 uh, or oh, seven not XM 4.72 SMTP. Uh, just announced that all versions but the latest are vulnerable uh, to an RCE bug, so that doesn't sound good. Uh, we have explored migration to a new setup um, with an up-to-date version of FreeBSD and migrating the services like the POP, the IMAP, the SMTP, and DNS to some sort of managed environment that would be appropriate for us since we no longer have a sysadmin. We need someone to discuss our situation in more detail to help come up with a permanent solution, hopefully before we suffer a compromise from the XM or some other bug. Perhaps a band-aid could be applied by manually compiling the patched XM of our existing server, which could buy time to make more permanent plans. In any event, you folks are knowledgeable and clever. I'm hoping you can offer some suggestions for our situation or offer suggestions for someone we could hire to help fix this mess. Uh, so if you or someone you know has some free time and is up for a challenge, please let them know if you uh, or when they can start conversion online or over the phone. Oh, that sounds really dire. Because without a sysadmin, that's pretty much difficult because it's not just um, applying a single update. It also needs to, you know, um, check whether there's new uh, vulnerabilities or whether the systems are still running fine or like whether the backup is working. Small things like that needs to have a person looking after those servers and see whether they have the latest patches and all that. Because uh, just doing it on an occasion-by-occasion occasion, uh, thing is probably worse than um, having no one in the first place because you can apply a patch here and there, but it needs a constant uh, person looking after some of these issues, especially if, you are, um, if you're a business relying on these uh, services to, to run and work. But I don't know anyone out of hand to, uh, who could um, help out uh, quickly. But maybe one of our uh, viewers is uh, at hand. 
Yep. Anyway, let's go to the next. Yeah, if you're interested, and send us um, uh, a follow-up, and we'll connect people. Okay. Um, so good luck um, with your uh, upgrades here. So next up is Alex with uh, convert directory to a data set. Oh, that sounds a ZFS question. Uh, so uh, that goes, I have a folder full of videos in some directory in, home, in the home directory on the data set zroot slash user slash home. To make backups and management easier, I would like to give it its own data set. What is the simplest way to do this? The idea is that I can move this to its own data set uh, do a ZFS send and receive to my other FreeBSD server, replace the disk in that machine with a bigger one, it is a laptop, and then ZFS send and receive the data back. Also, when I reinstall on the system, what is the best way to enable ZFS compression during install? I don't remember seeing an option when I installed it. Um, I think... The yeah, so there's not really a way to enable the compression at install time. So, first question, uh, creating a separate data set. Uh, just ZFS create the thing. Uh, your biggest problem there is going to be that if you first create it with the same name, it's going to mount the empty directory over top of your directory full of videos and you won't be able to see them. Uh, so you'd want to do ZFS create um, dash P, which is like mkdir dash P. Um, it'll be like zroot user home username videos. Uh, we'll, we'll call it new videos to start. Hmm. And that'll create a new data set um, and call it new videos. Uh, then you have to move all the files from videos to the new videos directory. Because it's a different data set, that's a separate file system. You have to copy all the data and then Could take some time. Uh, so it'll take a little bit of time and use up some space temporarily. But once that's done, you'll be able to replicate it and it'll be all good. Uh, so for creating the data set, you have two choices. You can just create the videos data set and then uh, do dash o mount point equals the path, or you can create the intermediate data sets and set them as can mount equals no auto or no, uh, so that they don't overwrite your whole home directory. Uh, or you could move more than just the videos and create a whole data set for each user, uh, move their home directories into it, and then create the separate uh, data set for the videos as well. Yep. Uh, for compression in the installer, there's not really a way to do it before the install starts. Uh, other than in the installer, you can do control alt F4 and get a terminal uh, and run whatever commands you want. Yeah, but the default LZ4 should um, be. I don't remember if we set compress on by default. I think we might. One sec. Let me I think we do because that. when the installation is finished, you already get a couple of um, files in. Uh, the log directory compressed to like 2.x something. Yeah, one sec, let me pull this up real quick. Um, so, when what you we could also do data set. Yeah. What you could no, also do is we only local. set. No, where's the compression? <laughs> um, Yes, uh, the entire pool is uh, created with compresses LZ4 and a time off by default in yeah. the installer. So, so all new data sets will inherit that. The entire that. pool by default. Mm. So all the data sets that you create will automatically yes. inherit that so unless you overwrite. Um, when you do an install, the whole operating system is compressed by default. Yeah, which saves a okay. bit of Next space. question. 
Okay. Um, this question is from Adam about a free NAS uh, specific thing. So that goes, hi guys, I have a quick free NAS question. Now I have an HP N54L microserver that's loaded with free NAS 11. During Hurricane Harvey, I live on the Texas coast, we had a power surge and after which uh, I noticed the onboard NICs seemed to be dead. The interface still shows up, but I can't seem to get it to connect to the network. The link light on the NIC also just stays lit, and I've tried to delete that, uh, that the interface and set it up again, but still nothing. I've recently added an Intel PCIe Gigabit NIC to the box, so I'm back up and running now. So his question is, how would he determine if the onboard NIC is in fact dead? Are there any other tools you would suggest um, for him to try? If the link light stays on when you unplug the cable, it's definitely been zapped. That's yeah, what happened to mine when some lightning came in over my cable modem and fried the onboard NICs in like four of the machines in my house. That was not fun. Yeah, but if it's the only victim of a hurricane, then I guess you're still lucky because replacing a NIC is relatively cheap. Yeah, although uh, especially with the microservers, you only have so many PCIe slots uh, or expansion slots and you hate to use them up on something as basic as a NIC. But yeah, if the light stays lit when you unplug the cable... It's definitely hardware host. Mm. You could try putting it in another machine and power it up, but it's going to be the same. Yeah, so that one goes to the hardware graveyard. And uh, yeah, that's pretty much the test we, we know. All right. Um, thanks for that question. Uh, last but not least is Florian with three questions, actually. Oh, wow. Okay. So <laughs> he writes, hi, Alan, Benedict, and JT. Too late for this week's episode. They came to my Tuesday 7 p.m. Benedict time and I forgot about writing this email. Ah, well, that's okay. But here are three questions for us. Okay, so first one. Will VNet slash vImage be enabled by default in 12 release once it's out? Uh, uh, or at least... In 12 current, it's already enabled by default. So it's been enabled for a couple of months already. So the answer is yes. So it will be yeah, compiled it into generic by default. Yeah, so you can uh, get that when you uh, get your uh, FreeBSD upgrade or any other upgrade way. Okay, second question. Do you know of a way to downgrade from current to stable when a new release comes up? Like stopping to follow current when the new stable branch is cut, preferably without reinstalling the system, of course. Um, yeah, uh, once there's a release uh, or even a, just a beta, FreeBSD update can do it, although sometimes you have to trick it. So um, the regular build world system will work to go from pretty much anything to anything just make sure you follow the instructions um, especially if you're on current and switching to stable that's actually newer uh, uh, is the fork of current and is newer that's actually still an upgrade um, yeah that's considered uh, but yeah newer. Um, build world is the best way when you're running the non-releases yep Okay, uh, third question. Uh, what about moving the outdated tutorials to GitHub so listeners can update them? What format are they written in anyway? Plain, handcrafted HTML, docbook, trough, markdown. markdown. Uh, we listeners would even convert them to something easier to use and well-supported by GitHub and a lot of tools, like markdown if it's currently something more cumbersome to update. Kind of regards from Berlin. Oh, cool. Yeah, so they're in markdown. Um, I've been considering moving the whole site from Pico CMS to Hugo. Um, mostly the difficulty there has been finding the time to do it. Uh, but yeah, making it all a Git repo so that people can also point out typos and other stuff 
is definitely interesting to me. It's just a matter of the time it would take to rebuild the theme in Hugo and get all the functionality working and mm. and so on. Uh, but yes, all the content's already in Markdown. So if uh, somebody was interested in helping with that, do let us know. Um, I could probably easily stuff all the current content and theme into Git and somebody could Hugoify it for us. That'd be great. <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, that would be nice. I'm not that tied to the theme. I kind of just stole that theme from somewhere and put it up. Uh, if someone is uh, giving it a facelift in in uh, helping with the website, that'd be great. Mm. Yeah, cool. So we hope answered your question, Florian. Greetings to Berlin. And uh, that pretty much wraps up the show. Not before asking you to send us more feedback and questions to feedback at bsdnow.tv. Things you find, things you find interesting we should cover in a future episode, like uh, show notes, topics, stories you find on the internet about BSDs. So that's always something we look out for. Just, Thanks for uh, listening and see you need, next week. We need the extra feedback because next week we're recording yeah. on both Wednesday and Friday. Uh, to start getting ahead to cover while we're gone to BSD can. Uh, yep. So, uh, the conference reason at the regular time, but also the Friday after that, and again the regular time, the Wednesday on the week after that. Yep. So, questions, anything that you have on your mind about BSDs, uh, let us know. <laughs>